Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we'll discuss the striking and widely praised reign of Omar II. His reputation for piety must have led to high expectations from the Ummah, but I don't think anyone foresaw the radical reforms he had in mind. It's frustrating how sparse the record is during this fascinating time for the Caliphate, but we'll do what we can to sketch out a coherent picture in episode 31, Omar bin Abdul Aziz. you've been keeping a close eye on these caliphs, you'll have already noticed that Omar's ascension represented a break in the usual order. The Umayyads passed power to their brothers or sons, and while Omar was a grandson of Marwan, he was not a son of Abdul Malik. Maybe this seems trivial, and it probably would have been so if he fit his clan's mold more generally. But as we'll discover today, Omar bin Abdul Aziz was an altogether different kind of leader so much so that his reign is sometimes described as a sort of religious interregnum during this period of Umayyad supremacy. Anyway, there's no rush to zoom in on this religious angle of his. Narrations about his piety make up an overwhelming majority of the material we have about the man. Let's start with our customary pre-Caliph coverage instead, and in it we will find some good clues for why Omar was so different from his cousins. He was born in Medina, just a year before Yazid bin Muawiyah died and brought down Umayyad power with him. Omar's father, Abdul Aziz, was made governor of Egypt after the Umayyads managed to retake the province from the sons of Al-Zubayr when Omar was around seven years old, and by the time he was ten or twelve, Medina had been retaken and the second fitna resolved. His father was much more pious than Abdul Malik, and he sent Omar to be raised and educated in Medina where the young Umayyad impressed everyone with his devotion and cultivated strong ties to the city's religious notables. His uncle, Abdul Malik, ordered Omar to Damascus and wed him to his daughter Fatima shortly before the caliph passed away. Before too long, the new caliph, Al-Walid, returned Omar to Medina as its governor, and we have already covered the rest of his career up to this point. Omar may have exhibited a proclivity for the religious from a young age, and his time in Medina clearly nourished those inclinations and went on to shape his entire identity. I have so much material about his piety and devotion that I'm truly spoiled for choice when it comes to which I should relate to you. He lived as simply as he could, endeavoring to spend as little of the people's money as possible. On a visit, one of his Umayyad kin complained to the caliph's wife about the insult of being fed nothing but plainly cooked lentils twice in a row, and she replied that it was all they ever ate. He never remarried after achieving power, nor kept a harem, and seems to have spent most of his time at the mosque. He stopped paying court poets for flattery, but our sources have plenty of honeyed words to report, and they insist that his Islamic demeanor made the bards of the Ummah sing his praises higher and more sincerely than for any caliph before him. It's not clear if Omar had a court. In fact, where Omar spent his short time in charge is a matter of contention, He seems to have shied away from opulent palaces and even populous cities altogether. I may have implied that he was in Damascus when Suleiman had died last episode, 
but it seems like he may have been in nearby Dabiq, a much smaller town. I find Al-Yaqubi's account to be the most convincing. He says Omar wanted to live nomadically, but relented after he was told it made it hard to reach him and he worried that harm could come to the Ummah as a result of his remoteness. He went to Damascus but couldn't stomach the crowds and left within a month. Then he tried Halab, but that was more of the same. Then on his way to Homs, while staying in a monastery some distance away from town called Dair Sam'an, he had to deal with some caliph business and afterwards figured he could just work from there. The problem with describing Omar's reign is that all we have is a bunch of stories about how religiously enlightened he was. We will need to mine these for context and other information, but their focus will always be on his piety, and they are predictably prone to exaggeration. The timing is all over the place. Al-Tabari's first story about the caliph ends with, quote, Omar died three days later, immediately followed by a number of speeches he made or letters he sent his governors demanding they behave better. I'm going to try and contrive a timeline, but keep in mind that we don't really have a leg to stand on here. One of the first things Omar did was recall the armies sent to conquer Constantinople. Maslama had been unable to make any progress in the year or two he spent around the Byzantine capital. He was returned to his position as governor of the northern parts of the Caliphate, Mesopotamia, Azerbaijan, Armenia, and Khansarin. It's telling that this campaign was halted almost as soon as Omar's reign began, and as a result some have viewed Omar as a pacifist who was anti-expansion. While I can see the truth in that, I think it's more useful to use the opportunity to reflect on its similarity to Omar ibn al-Khattab's prioritization of internal reform during his reign. While the caliphate grew immensely under Omar I, and as a result he is never described as anti-expansion, he was more concerned with figuring out something that worked for the lands he already had than conquering new ones, which I think is closer to where Omar II was coming from. The fact that the caliph gave up on the campaign so quickly also reinforces the idea that the Byzantine invasion was just Suleiman's vanity project. We're told that at some point, probably not too long into his reign, Omar summoned Yazid ibn al-Muhallab from Khurasan. Yazid left his son Muhallad in charge and made his way to the caliph warily. Depending on who you read, it may have been an open secret that Omar despised Yazid's casual savagery. There's a neat narration which says that Yazid approached the caliph in very simple dress, prompting Omar to ask why he wasn't wearing the fine silks he was usually seen in. Yazid's reply was that the people looked to their leaders for guidance, sort of blaming his lavish lifestyle on Omar's predecessor, Suleiman. Anyway, the unconvinced Omar accused the governor of hoarding wealth, demanding he return all undue gains to the treasury. And when Yazid insisted that he had nothing to return, he was placed under arrest. The caliph sent a man to replace him as governor of Khurasan, along with new orders to all his other governors. His directives were simple and straightforward, and they proved to be the deepest policy changes the caliphate had experienced for generations. Given his preoccupation with religious teaching and precedent, we shouldn't be surprised that Omar looked beyond his own clan, to the rightly guided caliphs for inspiration. His reign is most often compared to that of his namesake, Omar ibn al-Khattab, the Ummah's second caliph, who was also his mother's grandfather. The resemblance went beyond their austere tastes. Generally, it had more to do with their maximalist stance on the responsibilities of the caliph, understanding themselves to be culpable for any acts committed in their names. As a result, 
both replaced any governors at the slightest hint of corruption, regardless of status within the Ummah. They encouraged their people to report any such misconduct, and some narrations say Omar even offered a standard cash reward for any complaints which led to injustices being uncovered, even accepting complaints from non-Arabs. When the people of Samarkand protested that they had been treated unfairly under Qutayba, back during Al-Walid's reign, the caliph ordered a judge be appointed to look into the matter. The victimized people of Iraq and the East had the most to gain from these developments. Omar disallowed his governors from putting anyone to death without getting his approval first, which cut down dramatically on the use of the punishment in the region. There was a whole slew of oppressive taxation which Al-Hajjaj had devised for his domains, on everything from festival goods to procreation licenses. Omar undid all of those, which restored the status of the Iraqis and almost brought them to equity with the Syrians. Another move which went a long way in that regard was his recalling of the Syrian garrison of Wasit back from Iraq, something I'd like to tell you more about, but our sources don't give us anything to work with. They don't even mention the decision outright, but it can be safely inferred from other material. Now even more consequentially and courageously, Omar became the first caliph to take a stance on the status of the Mawadi within the caliphate. Mawadi is plural of Mawla, and it refers to the non-Arab Muslims who were especially numerous in the East. The position he adopted towards them was unassailable. As commander of the faithful, he had a responsibility to administer justice to all Muslims who were equal in the eyes of God. There were loud grumblings from his governors who warned that such a policy would lead to more conversion to Islam. It's like they didn't know who they were talking to, and when the caliph seemed unconcerned by that prospect, they explained that conversion would lower the ummah's tax revenue, since Muslims didn't have to pay a poll tax. Again, wrong crowd, guys, and the caliph replied that it was his responsibility to guide the people, not tax them. One official even made the idiotic suggestion to make tax exemptions contingent on circumcision, which he hoped would prove too painful a test of faith for any man to go through. Omar, deeply unimpressed, replied that God had not sent Muhammad to circumcise mankind. The anticipated wave of conversion that washed over the caliphate mainly took place across what we know today as Iran, but people also started adopting Islam in large numbers in other provinces, like Syria, Egypt, and Africa. Although some narrations insist that many converted right after Omar's decrees, we don't have enough information to tell the extent or pace of these conversions, and it is unlikely that immediate changes were substantial. See, you couldn't just say you'd converted. You had to physically move and live within the nearest Muslim city, and obviously there was a real limit on how many could be accommodated. We do hear a little more about Mawadi living alongside Arabs, and predictably, the stories convey a sense of resentment from the Arabs, who, for example, refused to pray alongside the new Muslims and excluded them from their mosques. Still, without question, the changes Omar enacted vastly improved the lives of non-Arab Muslims. Not only were they taxed less, they were finally allowed to join the Ummah's armies and earn a pension from the state for their services. When the caliph found out that the man he had replaced the Muhallabs with as governor of Khurasan was not paying the Mawadi he used in his armies, that he addressed them harshly and displayed favoritism towards the Arabs, he immediately had him replaced. This shows just how serious the caliph was about his reforms and how diligent he was in making sure they were followed. In this, I see another similarity between the two Omars, one that stems from their feeling of being religiously bound by their decisions. 
These weren't just policy ideas to them. The way they saw it, they were being faced with moral quandaries, and they would have to answer for their choices before God on the Day of Judgment. It wasn't just the Mawadi who converted during Omar II's reign. It seems like he was also the world's first evangelical caliph. He wrote to invite the various kings of the many city-states and statelets which had submitted to the Arabs into the faith. It's not very clear, but from what I can tell, much of the nobility around the east, from Iran to Sindh, took up his call and converted. Though if that is the case, then they must have not been asked to move to Muslim cities because they stayed in their estates. Maybe the idea was that after the leadership converted, the rest of the city would follow suit, because that was certainly how the Arabs did it on a tribal level. That's not how it played out, however, and the end result was a class of local Muslim nobility in much of Iran and the East who were very rich and now taxed very little, ruling overtaxed non-Muslim subjects. It might not surprise you to learn that this will grow into a real problem down the line. As we progress with our history, I'm beginning to understand a little bit better why Al-Yaqubi is often portrayed as a Shiite partisan. While I still disagree with that assessment, Omar's reign gave me some clear examples of why someone might think that. Al-Yaqubi dedicates two of his four pages on the Caliph to his relationship with the Hashemites, much of it about the death of Ali Zainul Abidin. If you're thinking, hold on, Ali Zainul Abidin died during Al-Walid's reign, then my response is yes but he is also reported to have died during Suleiman's reign and during Omar's reign. Here's the more interesting part. The first two caliphs get narrations about them poisoning the Hashemite religious scholar, but not Omar. When the pious caliph heard about Ali Zainul Abidin's death, he lamented his passing and praised him as the best of Muslims. I found the accounts of Ali Zainul Abidin's death during Omar's reign to be the most believable, mainly because I don't see why anyone would have poisoned him as long as he maintained his political quietism. It's also likely that Omar held him in high regard as he lived in Medina during the Hashemites' most prominent years as a religious educator. Omar was also the Umayyad caliph to put an end to the cursing of the Hashemites at the mosque. This had been going on since it was originally mandated by Muawiyah during the first fitna, and its cancellation did wonders towards restoring the standing of the Hashemites within the caliphate. He further honored the Prophet's clan by returning to them the Prophet's estate at the oasis of Fadak. One narration even maintains that he gave the Hashemites a fifth of the treasury, basically recognizing their claim to be the heirs of the Prophet, but that's a bridge too far, I think. We've covered most of what we have on this caliph, and I'm pretty sure a uniform picture of the man is beginning to emerge. We still have that narration which Al-Tabari opened with, and it's a good one because, while it probably is based around some factual events, it quickly morphs into an almost transparent attempt to use Omar's reign to rhetorically justify the religious legitimacy of the entire Umayyad Caliphate. So here's what happened. A bunch of Iraqis broke away from the Ummah about a year into Omar's reign. Some narrations say Omar just sent Maslama to crush them and that was that. But others insist that the caliph's orders were that nobody attack them in any way unless they spilled Muslim blood first. Very first gen, no? Instead, Omar sent these new Karajites messengers asking them how they justified their claims that they found life in the caliphate sinful. The caliph then generously proposed to debate them in public, telling them that if they could convince him of the virtue in doing anything differently, he would do it, but that if they couldn't, then they should be satisfied to return to the fold. 
They agreed and thus gave us some of the longest narrations we have about Omar's reign. First, some pleasantries were exchanged. The Karajite emissaries, there were two of them, thanked the caliph for his initiative, and he, in turn, assured them that he believed in the sincerity of their religious objections. Things began in earnest when the Karajites argued that the deep changes and reversals he had ordered pretty much amounted to an admission that his predecessors had been unjust in their management of the ummah. They said that while they appreciated these changes, they were too little too late. He should just admit that his kin had gone so far against scripture that they were effectively infidels, and to curse them accordingly. Omar's reply started by saying that cursing was not virtuous. Then he quoted a couple bits of scripture, which together stressed the importance of having faith that God would guide his ummah and its leaders towards the good. He added that despite the differences in opinion he had with his predecessors, they were Muslims who prayed, fasted, and fulfilled the religion's other tenets, so it was uncivil to question their faith. Then he went on the offensive. He asked the Karajites whom they considered to be the best of caliphs. When they replied with the predictable Abu Bakr and Omar I, he gave them a history lesson about how Omar had reversed many of Abu Bakr's decisions, his point being how that didn't count against either one of the rightly guided caliphs. He then asked them if they agreed with the early Karajites, and when they said they did, he pointed out the various inconsistencies in their positions. He concluded by telling them that their actions were misguided despite their originally sincere intentions, that in their unreason they were doing what the Prophet had shunned, and shunning what the Prophet had done. In their final remarks, the two Karajites asked Omar why he hadn't named a worthier man than Yazid bin Abdul Malik as his successor. It was well known that Yazid was close to Al-Hajjaj's loyalist network, and many expected him to display a similar disregard for Muslim life once he was in charge. Omar said that this was something decreed by his predecessor, and that he hated breaking the man's will. But the pair objected that he had a responsibility towards the ummah to leave it in good hands, to which the caliph had no reply. With this, the debate was over. One Karajite said he accepted all the caliph's argument and gave his pledge of allegiance anew, and another said that he had to follow his tribe's position and return to the Karajites, who were promptly crushed by the caliphate's armies. So that's it. Besides some redundant testimony on how religious he was, we have covered everything we have on Omar bin Abdul Aziz. His reign didn't last much longer than his predecessors, totaling around two and a half years. As Omar's eldest son died of a disease shortly before the caliph, it is probable that a plague got them both. It was quite tragic as they were very close, and our sources include some moving narrations about the pair. There are accounts which speculate that Omar's family poisoned the caliph, usually saying that after his debate with the Karajites, he began giving serious thought to naming a non-Umayyad successor. That's why Al-Tabari's narration on the debate, the one he opens Omar's reign with, ends with the caliph died three days later. Even in these salacious narrations, there is a focus on Omar's virtue. Some report that when the caliph realized he had been poisoned by a slave, he pardoned the man and paid his own blood money to the treasury. Now, I don't really buy any of it, but I have to say that considering how little we actually know about these years, we can't rule it out entirely either. The Umayyads had been unpleasantly surprised when Omar was chosen as caliph, to say the least and several accounts allude to their distaste for his many decrees and policy reversals, 
something which will be made abundantly clear as soon as his successor takes charge. Since Omar refused to alter Suleyman's will, that successor was the half-brother who was originally meant to succeed him, the Umayyad favorite Yazid bin Abdul Malik. Let me tell you one final snippet we get about Omar's death before moving on. This one from Al-Mas'udi's Entertaining History, which has some fun accounts about Omar, well, about everyone, really. Someone who features a lot in Al-Mas'udi's history is the emperor of Byzantium, who is often given the name Constantine. Al-Mas'udi reports how Omar had sent emissaries to call him to Islam. Shortly after his messengers invited the emperor to join the faith, news arrived that the caliph had passed away, and the men wept openly in Constantine's court. The emperor attempted to console them. Then he testified that this monk of Umayyah had been the greatest caliph yet, and that his saintliness resembled the ideals outlined by Jesus himself. As you can see, Constantine is a lot more than a simple rival in al-Mas'udi's history. He is sometimes used as a foil to reflect an imagined standing the Ummah or the Caliph would have held. Al-Mas'udi's Constantine would express his admiration for the best Caliphs and critique the ones he found wanting. It makes for fun reading, but I have to admit I haven't used much of al-Mas'udi's history during these last few episodes. We now get to the best but most speculative part of our journey, the one where we try to assess the Caliph's reign. Let's start with how his contemporaries viewed him, or how they told their children they viewed him, at least. Unsurprisingly, our sources, ever eager to vindicate the religious, tell us that Omar was loved far and wide across the Caliphate by absolutely everyone, with the possible exception of his clan. They bring out many short accounts of people honoring him for his enlightenment, here are two of my favorites. Omar's first year in charge coincided with the beginning of the second century and the Muslim calendar, and so the idea that God sent someone to renew the faith every hundred years took hold pretty quickly. We will probably cover the next two men who get dubbed restorers of the Ummah, but don't hold your breath. They will be pretty unconvincing by comparison. The other honor is how some sources refer to Omar as, quote, the fifth of the rightly guided caliphs. But we have good reason to be skeptical about these claims surrounding Omar's approval rating. We know for a fact that the Arabs hated it when they were asked to play nice with peoples they had conquered. Omar went further than anyone before him in enforcing policies which forced the Ummah to mix with these peoples, and I believe it's reasonable to assume that the Arabs serving in faraway Khorasan and Africa must have been disdainful of this new system. After all, just because the caliph was enlightened didn't mean that his ummah agreed with him. Like with almost everything about Omar II, there isn't enough evidence either way. The Arabs may have loved him for his piety, had a problem with his policies for being informed by that piety, or indeed, both. It's also interesting that we only hear about the Karajites now that a God-fearing man was in charge of the caliphate. Abdul Malik and his commanders had brutally snuffed out their many movements, and they fall out of our history books for about a dozen years, until Omar bin Abdul Aziz comes along. Sure, the disbanding of the garrison at Wasit may have helped them decide to pull the trigger on their little escapade, but I think these Karajites misunderstood Omar's ascension as a weakening of the Umayyad clan. I suppose it's not that much of a misreading, actually. The clan's power and unity were at a low point during his time in charge. He held no special preference for his kin, 
nor did he try and maintain a caliphate-wide patronage network through them, as Abdul Malik's paradigm seemed to necessitate. Still, the state wasn't weak in the sense that the caliph would just let these folks walk out and split the ummah, claiming religious objections, no less. Omar I would never have stood for it, and they should have known that neither would Omar II. So if Umayyad power had ebbed while Omar was in charge, what about Arab power? It's a tricky question, and so you'll have to accept an equivocal answer. See, I think that Omar's most important legacy was his addressing the status of non-Arab Muslims in the Ummah. A change in something so fundamental had a profound impact on everything, all the way up to the sort of political project the Caliphate was. The Arabs had never strictly banned conversion to their religion, but acceptance into the Ummah was considered an altogether different thing, never even on the table for these non-Arabs. But now that the Mawadi could fight alongside them and earn back the revenue of their province's taxation, the Arabs were no longer a sort of conquering military caste extracting tribute from a mass of settled populations. The Caliphate now had the potential to grow into something multi-ethnic, which if guided correctly, could have taken it to another level altogether. However, transformations like these took time, something which Omar was sadly denied when he passed away around the age of 40. Maybe if he had lived for another decade or two, he could have overseen the building of durable ties between the Arabs and the various people that they lived along, but it was not to be. Omar's reign was short, badly documented, reverent, revolutionary, and ambitious. I know I can't be sure what exactly was going on, but I like the vision and the commitment, so no complaints here. Omar II really ought to be praised. If his piety doesn't appeal to you, there's his sense of justice, his personal responsibility, his asceticism, his courage in addressing the stuff with the Mawadi. An impressive list, to be sure. He was truly unique among the Umayyads, and that sharp contrast will be on display next time when we discuss his successor, here on the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. <laughs>